If you can hear this message, listen closely. To the exiled, misunderstood, or upside down, this is your message of hope. When problems come, use them. When enemies persecute you, love them. These struggles are a fire, refining you into gold. Look around. You are not forgotten. You are not alone. Challenge what is expected of you. This world is not your home. You are different. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to have you joining us for in-person worship as well as joining us online on demand. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed it or not, but it has almost never, ever, ever been a good thing to be considered different. It wasn't until Galileo's writings in the mid-17th century, for example, that educated and enlightened people were exposed to the concept of heliocentrism, or the idea that the universe does not revolve around planet Earth. This idea was so radical, so different, that Galileo was labeled a heretic, he was imprisoned, he was placed under house arrest, and his work was banned. Galileo was canceled by culture before cancel culture was cool. Probably everyone in this room has a cell phone of some kind, but you may not know that it wasn't until 1993 that Nokia became the first manufacturer uh, whose total line of cellular phones supported sending text messages. Now, do you remember when text messages first came out? They, they kind of seemed like a joke, right? I mean, many people would say to one another, why in the world would we type a five-word text to someone when we can call them on the phone? Texting wasn't easy either. Uh, there, were, there was a time when cell phones uh, didn't have you know, full keyboards, and so that meant that if you wanted to send a text message that said, hi, you had to find the letters H and I on your keyboard, and usually there were two or three, maybe sometimes four letters associated with a number, and you'd have to scroll down and find, and then you go, okay, okay, H and I, they're on the, the number four, and so you would hold down 1001, 1002 to scroll past G to get to the H, and then you let off, and you got your H. And then you'd have to hold it down again and go 1001, 1002, 1003, so that you could get your I, just to send the word hi. Okay, so needless to say, texting uh, didn't catch on super fast. In fact, in 1995, the average person sent 0.4 texts per month. So not even a full text. I don't even know how they got that math, but not even a full text for the month. By the year 2000, the average American was sending about 35 texts per month. Okay, when it was first introduced, text seemed goofy, silly, even considered weird. But the fact is, some 30 years after the technology first arrived on the market, texting has become as natural for us as breathing. I mean, let's be honest. Your 11-year-old can probably send 35 text messages before he gets on the bus. Right? Technology that once seemed silly or weird is now the norm. What was once established or what's once uh, considered crazy and heretical that, you know, and got Galileo canceled is now established a scientific fact. But let me ask you this. What if 
Nokia had decided to continue producing cell phones that looked like everyone else's cell phone? And what if Galileo decided that the pressure of going against the establishment was more than he was willing to endure? What if they decided they were not going to be different? Today, we're beginning a brand new series of sermons, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be uh, making our way through the book of 1 Peter. And what we're going to see is Peter wrote his letter to the followers of Jesus, and they were under intense persecution and pressure from their neighbors, from other religious groups, and from their government. And what we're going to see is time and time again, throughout this letter, Peter encourages the followers of Jesus to refuse to shy away from the fact that they are different. When I say that the followers of Jesus uh, were facing unbearable persecution, I'm not trying to overstate things. The Roman government wasn't just insisting that Christians bake cake for people with whom they disagreed morally. The Roman government wasn't just infringing on their rights by insisting that they wear masks in public. The establishment wasn't just silencing, you know, the Merry Christmases and promoting Happy Holidays. Peter wrote this letter in the early to mid-60s, about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, during the reign of one of the most cruel and villainous Caesars who ever lived, a guy by the name of Nero. History tells us that Nero loved to build, right? He was a, a, a fiend for building. You know, he was very passionate about it, but, hero, or, but history also tells us that Nero um, not only killed his first wife and his mother, but likely killed his second wife as well. In the summer of 64, Rome was set ablaze, and nearly two-thirds of the city was destroyed. Historians hint that the emperor and his fanatical desire to build uh, had been thwarted by the Senate there in Rome. And so he, the emperor, arranged for the fires to be set, and he discreetly slipped out of town. He then blamed the inferno on a little sect of religious people called Christians. The historian Tacitus, who lived at the same time as Nero, noted that this event launched further widespread anti-Christian sentiment and the first full-scale persecution of Jesus' followers. You see, Nero was so depraved that he would round up Christ ones or Christians, impale them on spears, cover them in hot wax, and use their bodies as candles for his late-night parties. The daytime wasn't much safer for these Christ ones either. See, Nero was also famous for painting these Christians with blood and then sending them out into the Colosseum with ferocious, starving lions. To say that these early followers of Jesus faced unbearable persecution is not an overstatement in the least. The same level of persecution exists against our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, even to this day. In Middle Eastern cultures, Africa, Southeast Asian countries, uh, converts to Christianity from Islam are beaten and murdered, and in some cases, it's by their very own family. 
In communist China, pastors will simply disappear without a trace, as if by magic. Heck, back in June, a Christian street preacher was brutalized on the streets of Seattle in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or what's been called in the media the CHAZ. With this kind of climate as his backdrop, Peter started his letter by saying this, This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. In these two verses, we see from uh, Peter uh, that Peter is indeed the author, but not only that, we also see every member of the Trinity or the Godhead, and they're performing their unique role. You see, God is knowing the people. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying the people, and Jesus is cleansing them with his blood. On top of that, we see that the letter was written uh, to Christians dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. But let me draw you to um, the word that that Peter uses. It's the word foreigners here. Other translations, uh, this word appears as exiles, as sojourners, as aliens, as strangers. It's a Greek word, peripidamos, and Peter chose this word for a very important reason. You see, he could have just called these people Christians. He could have just called them believers. He could have just called them children of the Most High God. All of those descriptions would have been appropriate, but he called them foreigners because he wanted them to understand that they were not from here. This place is not our home. We are called to think and act differently. Jesus' followers possess different values, hold different standards, set different goals, because we, like Peter's first audience, are foreigners here. This is not our home. Every person at one time or another has wondered, why are things so, so bad? Why is everything so hard? If God is so good, why does he allow such atrocities to exist? Why are pain and suffering realities that we have to live with? Peter hints at the answer to this question in verse 6 and 7, saying, So be truly glad. Now, hold, stop, stop for a second. Wait a second. Did we miss something? Be, be glad? Is Peter being serious? Didn't we just say that these people are being tortured, like fed to lions, lit on fire? Aren't, aren't we wondering why trials and persecution exist? What do they have to be glad about? Well, let's keep reading. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Now we have to pause here because Peter has just given us a ton to consider in just a few short verses. First of all, he notes that trials must be endured. They are not optional. 
They are a reality, and every one of us will deal with some trial on some level. All our trials and challenges and heartaches, well, they'll be different. Your challenges will be different from mine, and our challenges may be different than our brothers and sisters in Kenya. But we will all face trials. You may have heard it said you're either in a storm right now, coming out of a storm, or about to go through one. And this is certainly true. But Peter reminds us that these trials or these storms aren't forever. They last only a little while. This is absolutely true for the Christian when we consider that our lives are a vapor. Eighty or ninety years of nonstop trial is still nothing compared to eternity of peace and victory in the kingdom of Jesus. Then, We get to verse 7, and Peter really starts to challenge our thinking. He says that trials, even terrible ones, are helpful because they prove that our faith is, is real, that it's the real deal, that it is genuine. Peter's telling us that there is a real faith, a genuine faith, and a false, phony, fake kind of faith. Believers possess one of the two, and the trials that we face help us to know which kind of faith that we have. Maybe you have an inherited faith. You know, you grew up going to church with mom and dad. They always brought you. You're here because that's just what your family does. You do church. In fact, someplace in the back of your mind, you you would say, like, it would be wrong not to do church. But the question is this, will this kind of faith stand up to the fiery trials that we will all one day face? I don't know the answer to that question, but what I do know is a startling amount of teenagers who leave their mom and dad's home and go off to college, kiss their faith, goodbye. You see, mom and dad's faith won't get them up on Sunday morning to go to church or get them into a small group or motivate them to study God's Word or challenge them to follow Jesus when no one else around them will. Genuine faith has to be owned and not just inherited. Even those of us who never stray away from actively attending church services should be cautious. Why? If showing up here is just a duty that we perform rather than a relationship that permeates through the entirety of our lives, we'll model this for our kids. And that's precisely the kind of faith that they will inherit. They'll grow up watching us go through the motions and one day say to themselves, this seems pointless. You mean, I don't have to get up early on Sundays? I can just sleep? Or I don't have to study God's Word? I can watch TV or go hang out with my friends? In addition to an inherited faith, many Americans, uh, American Christians specifically, have a conditional faith. As long as things are going their way and Jesus isn't demanding too much of their time or their money or their attention, man, they're golden. They love that kind of Jesus. They'll sing all kinds of songs about him as long as there's enough food in their fridge and money in their wallets, provided that he doesn't interfere with camping, tip-off, deer season, or time on the lake, they can get behind that kind of Jesus. Now, believe me when I say that the last thing that I want to do is beat up anyone 
with either of these kinds of faith, specifically this kind of conditional faith. But you need to know, we need to know, to be reminded that Jesus is demanding. He equates following him with dying to ourselves. This kind of conditional faith won't stand up to the heat that the followers of Jesus will one day face. It's like preparing for a war and the only weapons that we have are super soakers. I mean, how could a good general send troops out to face ISIS armed with water guns? I mean, that would be the epitome of negligence and disdain, would it not? Similarly, how could a preacher aim a Christian at heaven with a faith that looks nothing like the kind of Jesus, a faith that Jesus left for his first followers? Trials and setbacks and heartaches reveal the genuineness of our faith. And if there's no other idea that you walk away from this message with, I I would ask that it be this. A faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. A faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. Jesus' brother, James, said as much in his letter when he wrote, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials and setbacks and heartaches not only reveal the genuineness of our faith, they also draw us closer to God. Perhaps at one time, You had a loved one who passed away unexpectedly. And what you found is that tragedy drew your family closer to one another. Or maybe you're trying to raise kids, and what you're finding is that it is the hardest job on the face of the planet. And in the midst of this extreme challenge, you found yourself reaching out to your parents or your grandparents, seeking guidance and insight as you try to navigate the choppy waters of parenthood. Similarly, trials and setbacks and heartaches can draw us closer to our Heavenly Father. In verse 8, Peter says, You love God even though you have never seen Him. Though you do not see Him now, you trust Him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting Him will be the salvation of your souls. As uncomfortable as trials can sometimes be, they are also incredibly valuable because they reveal the genuineness of our faith and they draw us closer to our Heavenly Father. July the 1st, 1940 was a big day in Tacoma, Washington. It was the day that the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was finally open to traffic. The bridge cost about $6 million to complete and it spanned the Tacoma Narrows Strait of Puget Sound. The Tacoma Narrows was a suspension bridge, much like the Golden Gate Bridge of San Francisco. The Tacoma Narrows was a marvelous feat of engineering uh, prowess until it collapsed on November the 7th, 1940. Tacoma Bridge, Washington, opened only a few months ago, was built at a cost of over $6 million. But misfortune overtakes the great structure. These are some of the most amazing pictures ever recorded by a newsreel. 
the actual collapse of the world's third largest suspension bridge. Only a 35 mile an hour wind is blowing, but this apparently sets up a rhythmic swinging of the bridge, which increases with each swing. Finally, the swinging road and the suspension cables give way and plunge into the water below. Fortunately, the only casualties were a car stalled on the bridge and a dog. Now, did you catch from the video what it was that actually caused the Tacoma Narrows Bridge to collapse? Was it a hurricane or a typhoon or gale force winds? No, it was 35 mile an hour winds. It's a phenomenon known as an aerial elastic flutter. This is the same principle that we see when we take a piece of paper and we hold it tight between our fingers and we blow on it and it starts to, to ruffle. Each time the bridge returned to its natural state, its momentum would twist it the other direction and the wind would catch it and continue this fluttering cycle. Today, engineers will often place a gap in the center deck of a suspension bridge to minimize flutter, allowing pressure on either side to uh, equalize. Engineers also seek to design the decks of bridges to be as aerodynamic as possible. Now, the reason I mentioned the Tacoma Narrows Bridge this morning is basically for two reasons. See, first, looks can be deceiving, can't they? I mean, what appeared to be secure and safe and stable on the outside was destroyed in an instant, and it didn't take hurricane winds to do so. Poor design and the right, and the right conditions led to absolute tragedy. We want to have the kind of faith that won't buckle under pressure. Remember, a tested faith is a trusted faith. The second reason I mentioned the Tacoma Narrows Bridge is that the trials and failures of our past prepare us for the future. You see, engineers are way better prepared today for aerial elastic flutters than they were in 1940, in part because of the failure of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Similarly, just because you haven't always had the kind of faith that Peter's writing about in 1 Peter doesn't mean that you can't. Just because you haven't always viewed your trials as an opportunity to develop a stronger faith and draw closer to God doesn't mean that you can't. Think about this. This guy, Peter, who wrote about joy in the midst of trials is the same Peter who three times denied that he ever knew Jesus. But Jesus didn't hold Peter's failures against him, and he won't hold your failures against you. Jesus will welcome anyone who wants to follow him. His call is challenging, but it's to equip us for the trials that we face and prepare us for eternity with our Heavenly Father. So what kind of faith do you have, and are you prepared for it to be tested? We may not be living under the same kinds of persecutions that Peter's first audience lived in, but make no mistake, 
trials and setbacks and heartaches are on our horizon. Following Jesus is an invitation to suffer. Are you prepared for that? Or are you already scoping out the exits? Will your faith hold up? Are you ready to check out? Are you tempted to go with the flow or are you determined to be different? I'm so thankful that you joined us this morning and I pray that you'll continue to join us as we continue on in the book of First Peter. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that as we reflect on it, you will prepare us to live in a way that we are prepared for whatever might come our way. Father, help us to draw closer to you as we face trials of all kinds so that we may be strengthened and that you might be glorified. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.